Hello, and welcome to Exploring Axon, a podcast where we discuss Axon Framework, Axon Server, and their ecosystem. I am your host and a software developer at Axonic, Sarah Tori. In this episode, I spoke with Kenny Bashfagler about the importance of culture, collaboration, and the use of a common language in building and designing software systems. We also talked about the significance of conflict and ways of resolving it. I hope you enjoyed this discussion and let's have a listen. Hi, Kenny. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm doing great. So um, I have quite a few questions for you today. So <laughs> let's, let's get right to it. But before we start, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, your background, education, and where are you located? Yeah, so I'm from Amsterdam. Grew up mm-hmm. there, never moved actually out nice. there. <laughs> so I'm always, <laughs> nice. uh, uh, I'm a real, well, I'm, I'm close to Amsterdam actually, yeah. People yeah. in Amsterdam say I live in a village and people outside of Amsterdam would say I live in Amsterdam. So that's Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and I hear Amsterdam is absolutely gorgeous and my plan was to visit September, yeah. but of course, you know, things changed a bit. So hopefully soon. But yeah, yeah. That's, that's a wonderful place to be. Yeah, yeah. It's it's For me, it's just a bike ride away. So that's nice. wonderful. Well, I don't yeah. do that now often anymore. <laughs> of course, right? <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, I'm I'm 34 years old. I, uh, my education is added actually in embedded electronics. So from when okay. I was a child, I was always experimenting with electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this, there was this old board game where you yeah. need to match the, the electrics, like mm-hmm. low current board right. where you needed to connect electricity. So I can yes, remember that, that really mm-hmm. sparked my, uh, my interest in it. Nice. So uh, I always knew what I wanted to do. And then I was actually in the education and it was two parts. Just one was software, one was uh, electronics. And then I found out electronics uh, was really nice, but mm-hmm. I wasn't so good at, or I didn't find it interesting to discover. Mm-hmm. So we needed to calculate all the currents in this uh, electronics and I wasn't yeah. so good at it and I found it really boring. <laughs> right, uh, right. But I, what I did like was there was one, particular project where we needed to make our own um car yeah with sensors on it that mm-hmm. needed to follow a line we nice. needed to create everything from scratch uh-huh. and i was building the software yeah on an embedded thing and then the first moment i put the software in the machine it just ran straight and i was like oh and that was like yes <laughs> and, that's the thing i want to do <laughs> yeah and then i tweaked it and every time i tweaked it a little bit more it started mm-hmm. following the line and i was like ah oh, this is because that now is i cool. see what happens because <laughs> that instant yeah, gratification so <laughs> right yeah and that's why i loved software better than than this theoretically calculating right. the currents in in an, in an uh, yeah yeah that's understandable so then i yeah so then i roll into software that nice. way so uh, after my after my study Perfect. And um, I do understand that um, you worked as a uh, developer and as an architect for a while. And um, yeah. how was that for you? How was the experience? And uh, then we'll get to sort of the reasons why you sort of moved away from it, maybe a little bit. Yeah. So <laughs> I started actually, uh, I'm a Java programmer. I started as a Java programmer nice. and I was actually the first half year only working on legacy software. Okay. And, and migrating it mm-hmm. through a new version of IBM oh, okay. software. Mm-hmm. So then you really know that you're working with IBM. It was horrible, but I yeah. learned a lot. Sure, sure. I enjoyed it. And I learned a lot in that half year. Mm-hmm. Uh, after half year, I was done because it was boring, just <laughs> migrating. Yeah. Because I wasn't writing new stuff. I was just migrating. Yeah. But I learned a lot about the, the ecosystems mm-hmm. of, of, of yeah. it. And afterwards, I started to work for a product mm-hmm. uh, in the same company. And it was asset management. Right. And uh, the interesting thing there, what I really liked is the first thing they did, they were sending me to a two-day education on asset management. Nice. Okay. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. I'm learning new stuff. And then it started to click. Mm-hmm. Like the software started to click more. Nice. So, um, and, and that's how I started to really enjoy, uh, enjoy it. And I was already working in a small team with... Uh, we call them f- uh, people of functional maintenance people mm-hmm. who know on one side the system and on one side uh, they have domain experts nice, like, yeah. like business analysts. Right. 
and we worked closely in the team. So now mm-hmm. all the days you have DevOps and everything, mm-hmm. but we already did that like 12 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Nice. And then everything was event driven mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. with domain language inside and and i was like ah so i didn't know anything different yeah so that's really amazing because um that the timeline that you're mentioning 12 years ago that's when it sort of started becoming a bit more popular i guess amongst the programmers and um software architecture yeah yeah architects so um and that was that was my next question how did you come across ddd which is that's basically what you basically got to know from the from the get-go which is nice well, not 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 really. It, it wasn't DDD. It, it wasn't DDD in the sense that they they didn't apply DDD, mm-hmm. but like DDD is a collection of patterns, sure. principles, right, right, and practices. Right. So they they just used event driven and they used a canonical data model back there mm-hmm. in, the, in the middle of integrating several softwares. But there was one legacy system, mm-hmm. and I didn't quite fully grasp what was going on there because there wasn't really a lot of unit tests. Okay. And, and every time uh, the business came to me on, on several stuff, I, I couldn't quite grasp mm-hmm. it. So I was like, but this this integration, this event-driven architecture, I understand. Yeah. But why don't I understand most of the code? And then I was looking into it, and then I found the blue book from it. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, I, I first started reading the red book of Von Vernon mm-hmm. because I was a software developer. Yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> I started reading the blue book. So it, it wasn't that <laughs> that I learned. Deep. That's it. That's interesting, yeah. So... um. And then once you realized the the concept of DDD, what was uh, really interesting for you to basically grasp the idea and sort of move forward with it? So I, I know I know exactly what what happened because we already started building up a, a language there, and I think after I started reading this, I started to understand the code a bit more. I started to write unit mm-hmm. tests, even though. I, uh, from my education, I didn't learn how to write unit right. tests. I had a, I had a developer next to me with a lot of experience yeah. who took me along, right? Learning TDD correctly, mm-hmm. bringing in that pain, but really learning me that. And as soon as I started to write good unit tests, I could collaborate better and better with the domain experts. Very interesting. Yeah. Up to a point that even my users were next to mm-hmm. me. We were looking through the code wow. and they found a bug in the code. Because we were using that domain. That's right? interesting, yeah. Yeah. So the first pattern we mostly use were, uh, of course, the tactical mm-hmm. patterns in domain-driven mm-hmm. design. It's where usually the most programmers uh, start right. and most programmers stop. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that was interesting. And then at some point, um, there was this, I quite remember well, there was this new um, uh, project that required us to use a lot of right. data because we needed to send all the data to mm-hmm. the regulator. And I, I understand, I, I knew exactly that day that I was in a meeting because back back then we were just two, three people and I was the lead engineer, sort of software architect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't give it, it, it was multiple roles, right. like, but I was there for maybe three years, okay. three, four mm-hmm. years. And so I had the most domain expertise as well. So I was in that meeting. I remember quite well, there were 200 lines of, data yeah. fields each saying like accrued interest and all these domain specific languages and i like i know what what mm-hmm. that means but it depends if you're if i'm talking to risk or if i'm talking to portfolio management what an accrued interest right. is and then in that meeting it popped in my mind they were having a discussion about accrued mm-hmm. interest and we were using the canonical data mm-hmm. model and then it was like, oh, this isn't working. So I started reading more of DDD, and then I found the bounded context pattern. I'm like, oh, this is actually the canonical data model doesn't work. And then I started reading Martin Fowler talking about uh, micro canonical yeah. data models, which were actually mm-hmm. bounded context pattern. And I was like, oh, we need to switch. We need to we need to split this yeah. up. And and that's what we actually started to do. And then slowly I was working my way up to strategic patterns because then i also did some context mm-hmm. mapping straight straight off the bat nice. i also got a workshop mm-hmm. so i did a ddd workshop for, by matthias so that nice. was really nice it all yeah. clicked and then i was just like well splitting it up mm-hmm. and so that's also my growing part from a developer to a software architect to yeah more into designing mm-hmm. systems in, in in the whole so once uh since uh you mentioned it uh 
once you are designing a system or systems in this case, what are the uh, main things that you're looking at? I mean, of course, the uh, the idea of the business um, problem that you're trying to solve is, of course, at the top of all of this decision making. But what are the steps that you basically take when somebody comes to you and says, oh, okay, we have this uh, idea of this, whatever this business idea or business problem is, how do you break down those steps and help them out during the process? Yeah, so one word, visualize. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the key word because I remember we split that, that 200 lines of data model mm-hmm. into a visualized model. So I say, right. okay, we have this data field. Where mm-hmm. does it fit? How do you call it? In in, in what? Yeah. Well, then and then we started talking about, oh, we have a portfolio, and within right. the portfolio you have assets, and, mm-hmm. and then first, of course, they modeled reality as a data because that's what right. always happens. They try mm-hmm. to pull everything in, and then I tried to say, well, this is for reporting purposes. Sure. So how would we model that? How would we? Mm-hmm. And then we just visualize with several models entering the data fields and after we got that say okay where do we get it is this then the accrued interest from risk or is it from portfolio management and sure yeah yeah there we created the context map and mm-hmm. out of that visualization so that's where i started first first talking about the domain right and it really helped because i got that two day training when i started there yeah so I, yeah and and i know that i think david west talks about it Mm-hmm. When the developers, like in, I think in the 60s, 70s or something, yeah. they weren't developers. They were business people doing business and they mm-hmm. started to learn development. Yes. At some point they split it that. And he says, well, it's really good that they gave me that, that, that education of becoming sort of like a sort of developer. That's mm-hmm. also the reason why I don't do any stock trading because yeah. <laughs> I, I learned a lot there. <laughs> right. But but that helped. And then just by doing visualization and just mm-hmm. by visualizing, and it was really crude, right? I didn't yeah. know a lot about visualization yet mm-hmm. because this I think this was six, seven years ago. Mm-hmm. I didn't dive into it much. But since right. then, I learned a lot of new visualization techniques. And every time you need to change your strategy while you're doing it. Yeah, of course, of course. And speaking of visualization, uh, you do use event storming um, in your workshops and in your uh, modeling. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, Can you tell me the process? And especially now that we're doing everything virtually, so we're not, you know, gathering together in a a room with sticky notes and everybody can put that sticky note on the wall and uh, exchange ideas. How do you um, start the process and how do you do it um, virtually for, for clients or colleagues or yeah. what have you yeah so first a bit about event storming i mm-hmm. i started learning it from matthias i think that was already i don't know how long ago that was yeah <laughs> and i slowly got into it and ah this is interesting so i started to experiment with myself later on did alberto's workshop and uh, what clicked for me is the simple nature of it yeah so back there where i'm talking about the project i was back there with people who knew and understand IT, mm-hmm. so they knew what object models were. Right. Uh, but with event storming, you can drag in people who don't understand these object modeling or more IT. Mm-hmm. Um, funny story, I even did it with my parents-in-law when I was planning my wedding. Oh. Uh, because, yeah. And it, <laughs> oh, that's, that's a story to tell, Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wrote a blog post about it because oh, that's, that's I think that also shows the power of an event storm is that you visualize a timeline. Yeah. And that's all that is. And you visualize the important things for mm-hmm. that domain. So we call it business relevant. In that case, is what's the wedding. Yeah. So we visualize everything that needed to happen in order to plan the wedding mm-hmm. or do the wedding. Mm-hmm. And it was a timeline because it was from now up until the wedding start. What do we need? What do we need to prepare? So yeah. They already had their wedding 20 years ago <laughs> and been visiting more weddings than we did. So they were more of a domain expert than we were. Right. So we were just doing that stuff. And that's basically the, the start of that of an event storm is everyone mm-hmm. puts down their thoughts. I always say it, but but Eve corrected me a bit, but 
see it as Dumbledore putting that stick on his mind and put it in the pool. <laughs> right. Only you don't need to be Dumbledore because Dumbledore was this old, wise guy. Sure. But everyone, so it's everyone put just that, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter who you are or how much knowledge you have. Right. And that's the good part. Everyone can put their thoughts in that pool. And when you read Crucial Conversations, it's a book mm-hmm. about having crucial conversation. They call it the shared pool of understanding. The first thing you need to do in order to understand is put your thoughts in the shared pool of understanding. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's what you do in, in the step one. It's called chaotic exploration. Mm-hmm. So everyone writes down their events mm-hmm. on that timeline right. and saying, okay, what what needs to be, what do we need to do? Or what in case of an event storm for software product, and we always do the, the case of a... Um, buying tickets to mm-hmm. go to the cinema or right. to the movies. Yeah, yeah. What events are there? So well I I searched for I, I searched for a movie. I searched for a date. I mm-hmm. searched for a time. These are events that pop up then then and also we reserved seats. Mm-hmm. So seats reserved and okay. tickets paid and reservation made and mm-hmm. there and there's a lot of things that might overlap yeah. or are different. But yeah. it's important that everyone in their language, in their mind, put it on that shared pool of understanding. And Absolutely. for a virtual one, so we're using Miro or Miro, mm-hmm. two, of, yeah. two of the favorite tools. Yes. Um, we do the same. The only thing that that we dis- or that I discovered is uh, when you do that um, physically, mm-hmm. everyone does that where they're sitting. Yeah. So they're not influencing each other's sure, sure. language, yeah. right? Yeah. So it, I always say it's important to do it for yourself. So on Miro, when you have one board, mm-hmm. you also want people to not influence each other and sure. first write it down for themselves somewhere. And then put it and on then the board. Pull it on the board. Yeah. 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 But once you yeah. see it on the board from somebody else, that of course influences how you communicate yeah. as well. So or we fir- board it, yeah. Yeah, so we first always say write down everything you know for yourself yeah. and then look at the board and see if you can f- find new ones. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But don't delete. Right. Never delete. We'll do that later. Sure. We'll be fine. <laughs> so put and always mention, because people cannot handle chaos, right. always mention it will be fine. We will create meaning together afterwards. Right. Which is important because some people will get blocked by the amount of chaos that's happening. That would be me probably. <laughs> I need organization in this. So I always make sure we're going to structure it together. (laughs) So you mentioned something that um, I've been wanting to ask you, the concept of this language, right? We talk about um, we all have to basically uh, not only share the ideas, but also understand each other's language, right? So Mm -hmm. this is the concept that uh, is introduced as ubiquitous language. Do you um, also use that and how do you use it and how do you incorporate it into um, various parts of a business? Yeah, so there's uh, always a bit of confusion because people in a business, when they come to me and they don't know the DDD concepts or they -hmm. always say we need to speak the same language, but there's several layers of speaking the same language. Of course. Um, because language, uh, so my wife has a background in anthropology, and I mm-hmm. started telling her this concept, and she says, huh, have fun, because language <laughs> is never consistent. La- yes. Language is never ubiquitous. But the problem with software is that doesn't help, because mm-hmm. software is more stable or harder to change the language than, yeah. than we do. We can change our language now within a second, right? And yeah. it doesn't matter, so I know a bit of... Uh, German, Dutch, and maybe you know a bit of German. And when we speak <laughs> yes. German, we change the language, but we change the meaning. Uh, not right. the meaning, so, the meaning might be the same. But that's hard for software. So we need some form of consistency, right. knowing that mm-hmm. that knowing that language is fluid. So right. to do that, we talk about small, consistent languages. Mm-hmm. And that revolves towards the bounded context pattern in TDD. Mm. And, and this is the first thing that we try to make people understand is that right. language is consistent on a small part within a team, maybe, okay. and within a, a specific software. Mm-hmm. And outside, there can, be, there can be ambiguity. That's fine, as long sure. as you know the language. So it's the same when, when I cross the border to Belgium. Right. We might use the same words, but we might 
mean different things. But I know sure. I'm in Belgium, so I know we have a different name for it. I actually had this with, even in the Netherlands, I had it going to my ex's grandmother, mm-hmm. who came from a different part of the Netherlands. Yeah. And she used a sentence that for me means we're going to do it, but for her meant we're not going to do it. So How I asked her to, yeah, I asked her for my birthday and she didn't show up. And then, <laughs> then, then my, back then my mother-in-law said, well, is, is my mother not coming? And I say, well, she says, uh, let's do it. And says, <laughs> yeah, she's not coming. Oh no. <laughs> so, oops. But now I know. Yeah. And within companies, we want to have a similarity, right? Sure. We want to design the language together, mm-hmm. knowing that if we talk about a certain system or is in a certain team right. and we use a certain language that has mm-hmm. meaning a mm-hmm. and when we go to another team or we talk to another team about another software system we that same word has different meanings right and same as i will cross a border or cross in this case it was a different province in the netherlands right i know yeah, yeah. Uh, and and different dialects i know that so. different dialects yeah even different language so we have friesland in the netherlands which mm-hmm. is a totally different language yeah and again same word there's actually a nice ad on television that was interesting where someone asked can i step on the ice and they will say yeah it's it just you can just about step on the ice but in their language it's made no you cannot do it. You cannot. so the person will fall through the ice. And, and there's several of these examples uh, in, in a lot of languages, yes, right? Yes, of course. Even between yeah. German and the Netherlands, the, the word doof, mm-hmm. doof, in the Netherlands means you're deaf, but in Germany it means you're crazy. <laughs> exactly. So be careful what you're saying. <laughs> and, Might and be similar, happens, but not the same, yes. <laughs> exactly. And this happens a lot in, in, in companies as well. Right. And just... Talking amongst each other is fine because it's fluent and we can change it. Right. But systems are harder to change the language. So we need to make it more consistent. Of course. And we need to do that on a smaller, low level. So on a system, Mm -hmm. smaller, low level system. That's why microservices maybe got more into into play as well. Because we have this big monolith, which was actually a big ball of mud. Where we didn't split the models in language. Mm -hmm. Because actually have several languages in a monolith as long as you split them correctly yes and boundaries in them and the monolith is a fine and perfect pattern for Mm -hmm. that exactly so when you start this uh uh, sort of um distinction between okay these are the terminology uh that we want to use in this team versus this other team um Mm -hmm. where does that terminology where does that basically set of uh, verbal rules, if you would, come from? Do we start with uh, the top where the business comes in and says, okay, this is this is the business problem that we're trying to solve, for instance, and then we come up with these words that uh, mean something to the business folks, and then we basically translate that into the technical team, and then mm-hmm. more so within each team uh, into more detail. Is that is that how usually it works for you? Uh, not for me, but this is what I see that's usually being used mm-hmm. is that uh, it's also a bit to do with ranking, I think, uh-huh. but yeah. that IT teams needs to be submissive to the business. And in a way, that's that's true. But mm-hmm. when it comes to design, I don't think it's true. So you said it doesn't work for you. So how, how does it work for you? Yeah, so I believe that a team needs to collaborate model, so collaborative model, mm-hmm the language mm-hmm. together with the business. So the business might right, use yeah. a specific word, but now it becomes a bit mostly fuzzy for people who don't mm-hmm. understand software, but models mm-hmm. are abstractions of reality. And right. while a business person might use a word in reality, we make abstractions to models. And maybe mm-hmm. in that case, we actually decide, well, maybe this this new word, this other word might... Mm-hmm. be more specific for us or might right. be better in our abstraction of that reality. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we want to, it needs to be a feedback loop between between business people that help create the software. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to be the user right. and, and yeah. our team. And sometimes we might use the language that the business use or that the user mm-hmm. use, but sometimes right. we with the business, and in this case, I mean the business not 
a particular entity or a person, but but mm -hmm. the business value. They right. might they might or or the domain expert might might use a specific word and say, well, this is really ambiguous. Mm -hmm. You might use a different word. What do you think? And you collaboratively design the language. And so speaking of the uh, bounded context and how this language is actually basically uh, falling into the, the boundaries of that bounded context, once we try to, because sometimes we do have to connect these bounded contexts, right? How do you then uh, solve the issue of uh, maybe two different languages within these two contexts? How do we connect them together? What is the translator in between, if you would? Yeah, yeah, and this is this is the part that nobody reads in the DDD book. These are the strategic right? patterns, right? Um, yes. And I haven't read them. I haven't read the book in one go as well because mm -hmm. the book is like a every time it's you read it, you read. find yeah. Every time you read it, you find somewhere else. I actually, I actually um, remember a talk I had with Paul Reiner and Bruno. And Paul was mentioning something, and I'm like, huh, "What is this?" And he says, "Yes, in the book." Is it in the book? And <laughs> I've read, read it a couple of times, and I haven't read it cover to cover, but I've read all the chapters, one more mm -hmm. than the other. And yeah. I never. And then I looked. I got back home, and I looked at it, and it's like, "Oh, that's a whole chapter in the book. How can I miss <laughs> it?" <laughs> yeah. And that happens a lot of times. Uh, every time. It happens to me every time. Yeah, yeah, and I think it happens every time uh, you reread the book. So that's how my tactic of reading the book actually is. When I'm mm -hmm. diving into a concept, I reread that part of the book, and then yeah. I discover more things. Yeah. And, and and going back to uh, that bounded context and the translation, that's are the strategic patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you, it's again about collaboration, right? And seeing okay, how should we do this? And this is where upstream and downstream and context mapping comes into play. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So context mapping can be about several stuff. And Michael Plud talks about this a lot. And yeah. when you go on GitHub, you have the DDD crew, and he made mm -hmm. a nice cheat, cheat on context mapping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There are several layers to it. So first, right. the strategic patterns is about team interaction. Mm -hmm. And it's also about model interaction. Right. And then you need to decide, okay, how do these two models relate? Which model has more power? Right. And power as in who has the decision power? And mm -hmm. that's what we call usually an upstream. Right. And then the other model is downstream. So right. it it means, okay, and how do they interact? So can I change the upstream model or not? Do I have power over the upstream model? Mm -hmm. If not, then probably I might rather as well conform or I do an anti-corruption layer. So I if see. I don't have any decision power on the upstream model that I right. use, uh, so these questions you need to ask yourself, do I have power over that? Right. No. Okay. Then maybe I need to use an anti-corruption layer because I don't want, and maybe a, a translation is enough or a, mm -hmm. a conformance. And there's a lot of these strategic patterns, right? Yeah, uh, yeah exactly. And you need, you want to do that in collaboration and decide together. And, mm -hmm. and that's why I think software architects play a key role yeah. in having these conversations, not right. deciding, mm -hmm. but collaboratively um, model this out yes. with these two teams. Exactly. And say, okay, how are you? And, and, and that's why I think software architects in the past get a bad name mm -hmm. because yeah. they're mostly in there. And I've, I don't want, well, let's mention ivory tower, right? This is how you need to do it. Yeah. But I'm more of a fan of being this facilitator between these teams yeah. as a software architect right, right. and having the knowledge and having the the, 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 the whole system thinking, big picture know-how yes. of it. And then let the teams decide how are you going to act this and ask the tough questions and yeah. make sure the conflict especially arise between these teams. And that's why mm -hmm. for me, a software architecture is more, a software architect role is more a facilitator. Right between the teams right. instead of someone who makes the decision. Uh, they help make the decision. They have a big role in it, mm -hmm. but they never decide. Yeah. And this is something that you, I think, talk about um, a deep democracy, right? Is that yeah. what yeah. the concept is? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I like that you mentioned the uh, idea of um, the context mapping and upstream and downstream. And uh, actually, I... Um, I was working on a blog with one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Ivan, and uh, 
he uh, he's uh, of course much more experienced in in the domain, uh, and he was explaining to me the the concept of these uh, uh, different uh, ideas behind how you decide uh, whether a system would be upstream to another system, and those are really important decisions to make, and they have to uh, come from also what which context is your core context and which one is going to be your uh, uh, supporting and do you have generic in the middle of all of that too so those are the uh, really important decisions uh, to be made and I'm, I'm so glad that you you brought them up one of the things that uh, you talked about uh, also was collaborative modeling and mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit more about that also yeah we did so, talk about it quite a bit but uh, you know yeah so uh, for me yeah. if yeah, if we look at domain-driven design, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure who who made this up, but I got it mostly through Explore DDD, Paul Reiner. Mm-hmm. You have three pillars of DDD, yeah. is how I see it. So you have, we talked about the tactical patterns, right. which are the mid-contacts, aggregates, entities, yes. uh, that's part. Uh, then you have the strategic patterns, contacts mapping, uh, upstream, downstream, partnership, mm-hmm. information. And there's a lot more to discover there. Right. Uh, Nick Chun is doing a lot on that part. And then you have collaborative modeling. In order to get these two pillars, you need to have collaborative modeling, Mm -hmm. which means that we together with domain experts and our uh, engineers or people building the software, Mm -hmm. doesn't need to be exclusively developers, but we collaboratively model these strategic and tactical Mm -hmm. models. And that's in essence is collaborative modeling. We put people together in a room. Right. And we create the model together. We create a shared mindset, mm-hmm. sort of say. Right. Let's talk about that. We create common ground. A common ground is a, it's a nice phrase that uh, from Jay, Jay Bloom and Ruth Milan talks about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are several layers, right? On, on, a, on a big picture, we just need to know, okay, which, which are the countries? Yes. So let's collaboratively model what are our domains, mm-hmm. uh, what are our subdomains, mm-hmm. and what are maybe our capabilities. And here you're touching a bit of enterprise architecture and right a few colleagues of mine are doing and nick tune are doing a lot on, on that part right how can we blend mm-hmm. these two in but it's all about right. common ground where are the boundaries mm-hmm. on that higher part and that you do right. collaboratively well and then you dive deeper and deeper and deeper and every time it's about boundaries it's mm-hmm. about um what's in and this is what right. root, favorite quote of root malan uh software design is system design it's essentially mm-hmm. about context. So what's in, what's out, and what spans in between. And that mm-hmm. happens on several layers. And on several layers, you create that common ground on language. Right. right? And right. Uh, that's what, for me, collaborative modeling should be, because we can document it, which we need. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Right. But, Absolutely. But diagrams and documentation, and this is, again, something about Ruth Milan says, mm-hmm. it's about explaining to others. Right, right. Right. And and that's the collaboration. So it's a feedback loop. Documentation is there so we can explain it to others and get new insights mm-hmm. on and mm-hmm. change our mindset. So we wanted to create a shared mindset, not something right. on paper or... Right. Yeah. So I have to... Um, Ask so you have all of this uh, wonderful knowledge, and uh, you've done years of work in uh, basically uh, figuring out what is the best way to collaborate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, between between different um, uh, teams, different uh, groups of individuals, and so forth. And uh, you mentioned something on your um, on your site that sort of was very interesting to me. You, uh, there's a section that says uh, that talks about cultural needs, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, designing bounded context. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What what do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, then first, really quick, what's a culture? So why do we have a culture? Well, you, yeah. You're talking about chaos, right? Yes. We cannot handle chaos. So nothing in right. itself in the world has meaning. Mm-hmm. Uh, we cannot handle that chaos, so we create mm-hmm. meaning. And culture creates um, people, and people create culture, and it's in the interaction. The mm-hmm. interaction changes your culture because culture right. is about behavior. So that's really quickly... Uh, in basic what culture is and i'm not the expert there but i've, right. I've done some background i've done some study in anthropology lately right. 
Um, and looking at that, if you look at the bounded context, which is a linguistic pattern, it's not a system pattern, it's a linguistic mm-hmm. pattern where language mm-hmm. is bounded, uh, right. that also creates a cultural boundary. Because right. language is also within... Part of the culture. culture. Yeah. Of culture. yeah. And making that stable or making that consistent or stable also... Mm-hmm puts something in your culture because if you if your culture or your organizational chart is chaotic that right. will win yes right uh, and again a a quote by Ruth Malan and I always we always say we are behind on what Ruth Malan does yeah. 10 20 years ago <laughs> years ago yeah yeah so she has this nice uh, way of explaining Conway's law mm-hmm. uh, where Conway's law says right you're um you design system the way your communication is mm-hmm. too long in read. And she says, okay. if you design a system and you have an, and your system design, so your software design doesn't match your organizational design, then your organizational design always win. Mm-hmm. And the way I explain this now in Corona time, yeah. it's actually between the Netherlands and Belgium. Yep. There's the border on mm-hmm. that border in a city in the Netherlands. There's actually a shop. Right. Right on that border. So part of the shop is in the Netherlands. Part of the shop is in Belgium. Belgium. Great. Belgium went in lockdown. The Netherlands didn't went in lockdown. So Mm -hmm. the baby section went in lockdown. (laughs) Luckily, you could still pay because that was on the Dutch side. And actually, there was a line in between. You can can look it up there. Actually, there was a line in between (laughs) where you couldn't step. That is interesting. Yeah. So here you see that the organizational design, which are the countries in this case, that's right. how I see the countries, win over the system design, which is the shop. Which is the store, yeah. And this is what usually always happens if you don't design it correctly and you have two product owners. So let's say you have two product managers or product mm-hmm. owners who want different things, right. but maybe need the same data. Yeah. And you created one system for it. They will both battle for what's in. And then... And, what's in that right. system right and and similar to the netherlands and the and 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 belgium have ownership over part of that system and all right. of a sudden there's a line in between that system oh my god can you imagine but this happens a lot i have so many questions about this shop but <laughs> i have to yeah. wait until after oh my god this is so interesting <laughs> there's a lot well i i never set foot on that shop but uh, my colleague evelyn lives close so i should have asked her once but it's oh how I explain. We will have Evelyn in another episode. Unfortunately, she couldn't yeah. join us today. But yes, I will ask her about that. This yeah. is so interesting. Yeah. And so this is how I see when you look at the culture, you want to look at your natural boundaries, we call mm-hmm. them. So the cultural boundaries. Right. And uh, the first one I always say is this is how we do it here. Yeah. That's always an interesting one. Then you right. know, okay, I'm dealing with culture. This is how we do All it. Right. And, and if you if you don't set your bounded context correctly to your organizational culture right. or you don't change your organizational culture towards your bounded context, context then yeah. you're going to have a bad time. Yeah. Because especially also how does the, and this goes into a bit of your organizational structure, how does your power mm-hmm. comes into play, your ranking, who decides mm-hmm. what? If, mm-hmm. if you have a system that's being funded by two parts of your organization, right. So two parts of your culture, then you're going to have a Game of Thrones fight. Who pays for what? Right. Exactly. That's what we don't want. That's why a bounded context also have cultural needs. Right. In exactly. that sense. You need to look at the culture of the company, the culture that it is. Because maybe theoretically, and this is what I have my, my, um, my doubts, or not my doubts, but my criticism about, about a lot of software architects, mm-hmm. is they're only looking at what's, theoretically right the best way to model it right but they don't take into account this social part and that's how we come to social technical architecture right 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 they they're interplaying with each other and we need to see the whole in order to decide what's the best model right might not be the best technical model mm-hmm. theoretically yeah but considering the context of your culture or the, the social part you're in, it's better. And I think that kind of comes next because once the the culture is set and once the uh, boundaries of that culture, the values, right, are set, then you can 
tweak the technical parts of it and make that more adjusted to your needs, your specific needs. Which brings me to my final question. So I'm sure you face a lot of challenges within teams, within companies, uh, within individuals. And you mentioned um, chaos and you mentioned uh, conflict. How do you resolve those? And how do you you know, get past those issues and those uh, difficult times and uncomfortable conversations? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, one of my things I've highly invested in the last two years. Because I think, right, just putting people in a room just doesn't make it. Yeah. Because yeah. you have all these conflicts. Exactly. And I hope now within most of the software development, people know that failing is it's, a moment where you can learn. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's as long as you learn from sure. it. So I hope that's already sippled into the software. Mm-hmm. The whole continuous delivery is about right. early failing and learning. Mm-hmm. Same as... Um, Elon Musk does it with 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 uh, the rockets, right? right? It was actually quite nice to see last week where the rocket blew and he was like celebrating. <laughs> was like, well, now they learned. They got the data and they can learn. So I hope that's settled in. But conflict is also a um, learning point. Right. So every time you have this sense, uh, are we getting into conflict? Always know what is it that I don't know mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. So every time we start judging. So that's personally, every time you start judging, mm-hmm. then you stop learning right. because you're projecting yourself onto the another person's view. Right. And um, if you want to learn and if you want to listen, then we need to postpone judging. Right, exactly. And within deep democracy, we try to, we try to do that. Mm-hmm. And there are several pointers, um, which we do in deep democracy for that conflict handling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's the deep democracy the Lewis method. Right. That's uh, from uh, Myrna Lewis mm-hmm. from South Africa. That's actually the nicest one if you're in a Western culture yeah. because that's really structured. Right. It's a structured way of dealing with conflict. Right. Uh, but what 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 the premises is mm-hmm. is actually you want to spread. So you want to spread the knowledge mm-hmm. or to spread the why. You want to look for alternatives. Mm-hmm. And this causes conflict. Right. So we always say nobody holds a monopoly to the truth. Mm-hmm. Everyone is right by default. Right. And then let's collaborate on it. So how would that work is step one. We try to create suggestions. Right. So And that's step one in event storming, yes. right? We're putting all the ideas on right. the board. And, and, and it doesn't ha- actually need to be with event storming as well. I also do this for example mapping, yeah. for instance, yeah. which usually doesn't happen, but I always put everything right. on the board. Then I look for... Okay, who recognizes mm-hmm. things in this? Because usually we have conflict because we want the same. Right. Well, not usually. Sometimes. We always have conflict because we want the same. Mm-hmm. And that can be a concept in your mm-hmm. mind or that can be like really a physical yeah. thing. But usually yeah. it's about power. If someone has an idea, we need to do it like this. Then we have a conflict because we can only solve the particular problem in yes. one way. So one person has, I have a solution that we go walking mm-hmm. and the other person is, I have a solution we go bicycling. Right. And we can only do it one way. So we have a conflict. The end but result is the same, but the do, way of doing it, <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that's what we want to try is every time someone says, um, I think we need to do mm-hmm. this. So uh, I think we need to go by uh, bicycle. Right. Then the question always is, why? Why? So what's underneath? Mm-hmm. Why is that person wanting to do that? Because that is the thing you want to spread. You don't want to spread the solution. Right. You want to spread the why. And a great example is uh, someone in, in these workshops said, once says, well, I had a kid who wanted to go to school in her pajamas. Mm-hmm. pants, and, and then you can say, well, no, because she needs to wear right. trousers. But then her question is why? And said, because they were comfy. Yeah, there okay. you go. <laughs> So now we can now we can discuss the that why sounds familiar. It's my everyday at my house. Yes. Yeah. So maybe we can buy you a comfortable right. trouser then. Problem exactly. solved, right? And so usually we bickle and fight about the mm-hmm. solution, while we need to look at why, the, the why. reason. Yeah. And you want yeah you want to spread that. So what I always ask is someone says, okay, I want to wear comfortable trousers. 
okay, who else wants to do that? And then you're going to spread yeah. that, yeah. right? You're going to say who else? And then people need to, ra- well, you don't see it, but you oh, need to raise your hand. So you need to want to make it visible again that people relate sure. to that. Yeah. Great. And then, so that's how you look for alternatives mm. during this uh, conflict making. And then you already lower the conflict bar and you're raising the yeah. why. So then people might actually say, hmm, now we want the same, but we have different solutions. Right, right. But now we can discuss that. And then finally, of course, there's always a democracy. Majority wins. Right. At some point, you discussed all alternatives. and (laughs) Right. Yeah. So either the majority wins or someone decides. But now it's the important question. Mm -hmm. If you want to have people go along with you on the decision or go along with the majority, you ask, okay, people who weren't in the majority, what do you need to go along? Like right. We're gonna we're gonna go by bike. Yeah. But what do you need to go along? How with can system? we help you to get there? Yeah. yeah so they might really say, important. well, maybe uh, I can go by bike, but I I need to uh, prepare myself for it. Mm-hmm. I need a better jacket. And that's yeah. all fine because that's within the boundaries of the decision. Right. Right. That's what we usually forget, and and that's the that's the higher part of the decision making mm-hmm. in deep democracy where you yeah. try to get everyone on board. But sometimes we're dealing with polarities and that's a whole different discussion, but that's right. going fast versus going slow. Yeah. And that's problems you cannot solve. The difficult part inside of me is like, what if somebody doesn't know how to ride a bike? Then what do you do? <laughs> right. Well, that's what they will say. They say, I want to go along, but I can't. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, we're going to make this decision. Maybe we'll now the you. decision will be, right. how are we going to teach this person to get along with it? How can yeah. we... Let this person go along with it. Maybe right. we can have a, uh, a two-person bike mm-hmm. where someone just puts the the the, the, the steering, yeah. and the only thing that they need to do is pedal. Let's just pedal. That's something that's easy, right? And well, pair programming, right? <laughs> right exactly. Let's all do. Let's all do. Well, the decision is we all gonna do uh, TDD now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know yet. We're gonna pair, and mm-hmm. I'm gonna learn you. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So it's mostly also about the insecurities, right? If people right. don't want to go along because they're afraid. And that's the that's the hardest part. And we yeah. call it holding the space, creating mm-hmm. a holding space for mm-hmm. people to share. Right. We need to make sure that everything has to be set. Right. What has to be said. It doesn't mean everyone needs to speak mm-hmm. because that's two different things. Yeah. It just has to be everyone needs to feel hurt that their opinion is on the table. Yeah. And that's important because normally we point fingers. Hey, you haven't talked yet. Yeah. Ooh, that's that's dangerous that you point the finger to someone to speak. Putting but them on spotlight. Yeah, it's up, absolutely. It's up to them to speak and everything just needs to be on the table. That's it. And I like that you uh, mentioned that collaboration and that sense of, yes, it is a democracy, but if there are opposing um, ideas or challenges, then there is this uh, culture. Again, we're going back to the culture, right? Culture of wanting to solve this uh, this hurdle, this challenge the best way possible that is actually uh, doable for everybody in the team and not yeah. leaving people behind just because somebody is not capable of doing, you know, X, Y, and Z that you're asking them to do, which is rude, yeah. which is something that's important. And um, transferring the knowledge, not doing all sorts of like gatekeeping and things like that. Those are really important things that uh, sometimes lack in some of the organizations or companies. Yeah. So that's and in this interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So culture is about interaction. Yeah. In this interaction, you're changing your culture, but in a way that you want it because right. you're having the interaction. Yeah. And hopefully and, for the better. Yeah, and and this is the the, the thing about conflict. Um, my past relationship mm-hmm. didn't went really well. Right. Sorry. And what I'm usually no no problem. I have I'm married now and I'm happy. But what what I didn't do back there mm-hmm. is actually dive into the conflict. Yeah. Instead, I was looking for uh, how I want it to be. Mm-hmm. And that's what we usually yeah. do. If we dive into that conflict, we're looking at the happy to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how you solve it. Mm-hmm. You solve it by diving into that conflict and having the interaction and the tough discussion with each other. Yes. Because what hap- what what happens? It's like um, you're in a bad relationship, and then say, okay, well, they have kids. Let's have kids, and they look happy. So let's like you copy pasting the model. Yeah. They're doing Spotify model. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do Spotify that. model. Yeah. Then everything will be better. Right. No, 
dive into the conflict, mm-hmm. talk with each other what goes wrong, right. and look from there yeah. where what you can change and where you can go. But first, have that tough discussion, exactly. and that's how you create a culture. Yes, uh, a, a a dense culture that a tribe actually. Mm-hmm. I had a conversation with someone uh, last week when they talked about um, we were talking about parenting and, you know, the, all of these challenges that come along with it and all of the challenges that it imposes to uh, not only you as an individual, but you and your partner and your relationship together and all of these things that you never thought about. And now you have to think about and have to uh, come up with solutions. So how do we come up with these solutions? And uh, she said something that was uh, very nice, and I could I could understand it because I work for a company that creates framework. And she said, having a framework as a, you know a parenting framework is always helpful. And I was like, ding, that makes sense because yeah. you have this this framework, you have the same language, you um, have the same points that you can come to, and tweak things and um, either make them better or just follow the 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 trail of the framework that you have. And I think uh, yeah. these are all of the really important things that we talk about in, uh, you know, relationships, parenting, families, business, and things like that. And uh, having the same conversation in designing software and designing system is also very, very crucial and important because the ultimate goal is to uh, achieve something in this business that we're trying to achieve, uh, solve a problem, yeah. make something easier for ourselves and the team. So I think what you do is extremely valuable because um, making the team members understand each other, making those uh, conflicts have some sort of resolution, I think is a big part that a lot of us are afraid of even touching with the 10 foot pole because it's uncomfortable. But I think yeah. it's, it's, it's a nice way of uh, overcoming those challenges. And, and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your wisdom with, with me and everybody else yeah. who's listening. So any final points that you'd like to mention? Yeah, because you said something really important. And yeah. one of the important things, it's about the framework. So right. usually when we give workshop, people ask us, what is the bounded context? Mm-hmm. And I cannot give you the solution, but I can give you a framework that, that can, that help, can you. help you, right. guide you in yes. a process mm-hmm. to find out. And that's like Kinevin is a framework, right? It gives you common ground right. of where sit complexity and how do we tackle the problem mm-hmm, mm-hmm. dd is is not a framework it's an approach uh, and what it is is um that framework is important so right. it's a guidance it's help you create common mm-hmm. ground it helps you right. create talk about the process and right. the rest right. we do and that's maybe that's the key thing about collaborative modeling mm-hmm. as a software architect you're guiding the process right. you're throwing in practices not even event storming there's a lot mm-hmm. of more of these visual practices yeah. Yes. Um, and you're guiding the process. And that's yeah, the most important absolutely. part. So you were, I think that's what you were saying. It's a framework. And DDD is an approach which has practices, which has frameworks in it maybe that help you come to the solution. Absolutely. And it isn't a blueprint that gives you a solution. Mm-hmm. Two different it, things. It helps you. It, it just guides you to, yeah, to get to where you, you want to go, which is, which exactly. is awesome. Thank you so much, Kenny, for joining me yeah. today. And uh, hopefully... We'll have more conversations uh, in the future and uh, dive a little bit deeper into all of these uh, topics that you mentioned today. I really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Kenny. Please join me next time as I tackle other important and interesting issues. Until then, have a great time and happy coding.